right, guys, thanks for being here, and let's go ahead and get started. Well, let's start off with a table discussion question here, and here's the question. Is it easier to ask someone else for forgiveness, like when you've wronged them, or to forgive someone else when they ask for forgiveness? So you've messed up, you've hurt somebody, is it easier to go and ask for forgiveness, or is it easier for you when someone has hurt you to offer forgiveness to them? Talk about it just a minute around your tables, and then we'll come back together. All right, guys, I hope what's happening around the table as you're having conversation is that, uh, first of all, you're sharpening one another. It says, as iron sharpens iron, one man does another. Uh, maybe some accountability. Maybe as you hear somebody else talk, it, it helps you walk through something. Um, I'm just reminded uh, yesterday, the Lord, have you ever just had a day where you just, I mean, the Lord's good to us every day even when we walk through rough times. But have you ever just got to the end of the day and said, Lord, you were just really good to me today. Like way more, I mean, I, I deserve none of it, but yesterday was just a really good day. There are two guys sitting in this room tonight. I'm not going to tell you who they are. I don't want to embarrass them at all. But both these guys in their own way ministered to me yesterday. And I just got to the end of the day and said, Lord, just thank you for godly men that would just encourage me, hold me accountable, pour into me, and be there for me. And guys, we need that. So many times we have guys that we call friends, but uh, you know they, we, we talk about sports, we talk about our jobs, we may talk about the kids a little bit, but we don't really talk about things that are really pushing us to the Lord. And so I hope what's happening at the table is that as you talk about whatever question, or maybe you, you I don't know, you may chase rabbits at your table, but, but hopefully you're sharpening one another, you're encouraging one another. I would be willing to say in a room this size, there's probably some guys that are sitting there saying, I hear what you're saying, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not going to forgive. I, 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 you don't know what he's done to me, you don't know what she did to me, you don't know what I walked through, and so I'm just, you've, you've already made up your mind, you are not going to forgive. And so I'm just praying, I don't even know who I'm praying for, but I'm just praying if there's any of us in this room that are like that, that the Lord would just soften our hearts. Because Jesus is very clear that if you're unwilling to forgive, he's unwilling to forgive you. And so I just want us to really take this attitude of, Lord, I'm teachable. I'm reminded of the uh, two guys that went in the temple to pray. You remember the one guy, the Pharisee, who beat his chest, and he was drawing all attention to himself, and he was very braggadocious in the way he was, very prideful in the way he was praying. But then the other guy that went over to the side, kind of out of the light, and was quietly talking to the Lord reverently, and he was repentant. That was the one that the Lord found favor with. The guy that humbled himself. And guys, I don't know what's going on in your own life, but sometimes we just need to be humbled. And when we specifically talk about forgiveness, sometimes we just got to set our pride down to the side and we got to say, God, what are you calling me to do? And so last week we looked at Joseph and how he forgave his brothers. We're going to go back and look at the same story. We're going to take a little tweak on it. We're going to go a little bit further into the story, but in the second chapter of R.T. Kendall's book, he talks about seven principles that we find from Joseph's life. And actually, if you read it, he kind of cheats. He says it's seven principles. It's six principles from Joseph's life and then one principle that we find later on in Scripture. But seven principles that he talks about in this book that we're getting ready to talk about. But let's look at Starting in Genesis chapter 45, let's look at verse 1, and let's just kind of slowly work our way through this, and we'll have a couple questions for the table here in just a moment. 
Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. R.T. Kendall says, the first lesson we learn from Joseph is do not let anyone know what someone said about you or did to you. Now, we have convinced ourselves that when we're going through something, we need to have somebody to vent to. You ever use the word vent? I just need to vent a little bit. The problem is oftentimes when we get in a situation where we need to vent, we need to call it what it actually is, and it's gossip. Because if your intent is to share with somebody else how someone else has hurt you, And to be able to air out everything that's happened, what the Bible calls us to do, which we'll look at a later date, you already know it in Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says you don't go to somebody else. Even in a venting attitude, you go to that person. And so that's some language that we use in our modern day culture to say, well, I just need to vent. But what what we learn right here is Joseph sent everybody away. He said, hey, I don't want anybody else in here while I deal with this. Why? Well, he was protecting his brothers for one. Now, probably he didn't want the, the Egyptians to see him weeping and all that stuff. But we find out in the next couple verses that they heard him anyways because he wept so loudly. But it was a protective thing. And so the first principle we see is do not let anyone know what someone said about you or did to you. Now, I, I'm going to go just a little bit further with it. I have been married in July, Lord willing, make it to July, uh, Lord willing, I'll have been married 15 years and my wife and I have a, a deal where we, we just talk about everything. I mean, we, we don't keep secrets from one another. We don't keep financial secrets from one another. We don't keep any type of secret from one another. But there are certain things that happen that either I hear somebody's walked through this, somebody's gone through this. I've sat across the table before from guys that have shared things about their life with some struggles they've had. I don't go home and tell my wife those things. You say, are you keeping secrets from her? No, I'm protecting her. And I'm protecting the person that I was talking with. There's some things she just doesn't need to carry. And there's a difference in going home and saying, you're never going to believe what I heard about Jeremy Wilbur. Oh, Jeremy Wilbur, right here. Never gonna believe. No, that, that, that's not what I'm saying. We, we, we definitely don't need to do that. But even just in the, the, the idea of I'm going to go home and vent a little bit, she doesn't need to carry that. Your best friend doesn't need to carry that. If you have ought between your brother The Bible says you're to go to your brother and you're to deal with it. And then if that brother won't deal with it with you, then you go and get another brother, somebody that's mutually uh, knows both of you, and you go together in brotherly love and you walk through that. And then the Bible says if that doesn't work, then you go before the church and there's a whole list of how you're supposed to do those things. But the key principle here right off the bat is you don't need to be telling other people that somebody's hurt you. Look at verse 2. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. The second principle R.T. Kendall says here is, do not allow anyone to be afraid of you or intimidated by you. Do not allow anyone to be afraid of you or intimidated by you. Now, I would imagine that these guys were set up in a position. They had no idea who he was, but the moment the words came out of his mouth, can you imagine the fear and trembling that was going on inside of them? 
I wonder if they immediately remembered the visions that he had had as a younger man where basically he told them, one day you're going to bow down to me because that is exactly what has happened in this situation. I wonder if they just thought he's the second in command, he could have us killed immediately for everything. I don't know. But notice that, that the, the first thing that Joseph says to him is, my father's still alive. He doesn't come down on them in wrath. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't uh, try to scare them. It says in verse 3, he says, but they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. They were terrified in his presence. There is a way in which you should carry yourself that you do not make yourself appear inferior to anybody else, that you are over anybody else, that you're lording over anybody else. And I'll give you an example of this. I'm a people watcher. I really enjoy watching people, how they carry themselves. And I'm not saying I'm attracted like in a weird way, but, that, but there's an attractional thing about a person that maybe is in a high place of, of wherever the Lord has placed them or whatever, but carries themselves in such a way that you would never know it. There's something about that because what that points me to is the person of Jesus Christ. If anybody could have walked the earth with their chest stuck out and their shoulders held high, it should have been the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet he humbled himself to the form of a little baby. And he lived a life that was perfect, but at the end of it, he was brutally murdered for you and I. He didn't have to walk that path, but he did. And so a couple weeks ago, we had a guy that was here speaking to a lot of the leaders. I'm sure a lot of you were in that room. His name was Mac Lake, and I've never met him. Uh, I probably couldn't have picked him out of a crowd. I've heard him a couple times on, on, on YouTube or something like that. But I, I just thought, there, this is a guy that is led at a very high level, and I'm just going to watch him. And so I did. I didn't introduce myself the first night he was there. And I just watched him. I watched the way he interacted with people. I watched the way he carried himself. And the next day I got to stand right before him and I just said, thank you for having a posture of humility. Because there's something about that that's very attractional. I enjoy listening to what you have to say because you're not over here just trying to beat me over the head with it. Joseph is in a place where he has been humbled by the Lord. You think about it. When Joseph was thrown into prison, he uh, was able to interpret the visions of the two guys that were in prison. Immediately, he could have probably been released from prison if they would have gone out and said, you're never going to believe this guy can tell all the visions. But the Lord had some work still to do on Joseph, and it was in the Lord's timing that he would deliver him from that. And so Joseph's first thing is not to beat them over the head with what they've done. Joseph's first thing is, I am Joseph, your brother. Is my father still living? Look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near him. I'm Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. He's, he's in some ways letting them off the hook here. He's come to a place in his own personal life where he realizes that God's plan is bigger than anything his brothers had planned and anything he had planned. And he says to them, it is not you who sent me here, it is God. God used what you meant for evil and he turned it around and used it for good. So RT, the third principle RT says here is we will want them to forgive themselves and not feel guilty. We will want them to forgive themselves and not feel guilty. 
Let me go back to verse 5. It says, And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. How many of you know we can't go back and fix the past? It's been done. I'm sure there's things that you've said, and as they were coming out of your mouth, you wish you could just pull them back in and cover the ears of the other person. Once it's said, it's said. Maybe it's something that was said. Maybe it's something that was done, but it cannot be changed. That has already been done. It's in the past. What had already been done to Joseph had already been done. And what he says to them, don't be grieved or angry with yourself. R.T. says, we will want them to forgive themselves and not feel guilty. It's interesting how Joseph said, this is who I am. I really desire to see my father. Is he still alive? And by the way, he was more concerned about their feelings and what they were walking through than himself. He immediately begins to console them. He immediately begins. Now you think about it. You may be sitting out there saying, I can't forgive. You don't know what my father did to me. You don't know what my uncle did to me. You don't know what my mom did. You don't, you don't know that I was abandoned. You don't know that I was beaten. You don't know the things that I walked through. I don't. And I don't have to know those things. But when I look at this story, I see a man that walked through all of those things. Abandonment. Being sold into slavery. Beaten thrown into prison, and yet he comes to a place through the power of the Lord to where he can totally forgive his brothers. Look at verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing of harvest. This is still Joseph talking. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8. Therefore, If it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here's the fourth principle that R.T. talks about. He says, we learn from Joseph's life, we will let them save face. He could have lit into them. He could have sent them to prison. He could have had them killed. He could have had anything he wanted done to them because of the place of power that he had but yet he allows them to save face. He says, it's not you who sent me here, it's the Lord who sent me. How many of you know that sometimes, even when you walk through the darkest valley, God still has a plan, and he's still working it out, and he's still being faithful, and he still will never leave you nor forsake you. The question is, are we gonna walk in obedience and be faithful to him as well? Joseph does that, And Joseph allows his brothers to save face. Look at verse 9. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have. There I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen, and bring my father quickly. Here's the fifth principle he says we see here, is we will protect them from their greatest fear. You know what their greatest fear is as they stand before the second most powerful man in the world whom they have harmed beyond anything that you could imagine is that he would either throw them in prison or he would have them killed or he would send them into exile. 
and yet he protected them from their biggest fear. I just wonder when we don't forgive someone and oftentimes when we're, when we're working through things of unforgiveness, sometimes the other person doesn't know they've hurt us. There are times somebody says something and, and, and they don't know that what they've said has offended you. We can let those things build or we can release those things back to the Lord and just completely forgive them and move on. That person's not living in fear. They don't even know they've offended you. But there are times when there is something between two people and both parties know there's an issue. And both parties can be fearful. But what Joseph does in this situation is he releases them from that fear and he protects them from that fear. I'm not going to harm you. Actually, God has sent me here to bless you. And so we will protect them from their greatest fear. I want to turn it to a table discussion, but I want you to think about these five principles. We're going to come and look at the last two principles after this table discussion, but I just want you to think in your own life as you've maybe totally forgiven somebody, or maybe it's somebody that you're still working through. You're still trying to figure out, am I going to be able to forgive this person? How would you do this and allow them to save face? How would you protect them from their greatest fear? So here's a question I want you to discuss. In what way does pride play into the decision about whether or not we are going to follow through with this part of forgiveness? I know in my own personal life, I've got a lot of pride. And the Lord is dealing with me in it. And by the way, how many of you know that uh, if you don't allow the Lord to deal with you in your pride, he will deal with it. And by the way, it's not ever a good deal. But he will deal with it. He hates pride. The Bible says it's detestable in his sight. He hates it. So how does pride play into this whole idea of unforgiveness? And why is pride so difficult for us? Why specifically? I'm not talking about women. I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about as men. How does this pride thing play into the idea of unforgiveness? And why is pride so difficult for each and every one of us? Take a few moments around your table. We'll come back in just a few minutes. Let's fast forward just a little bit in the, uh, in the book of Genesis to chapter 50. So we're fast forwarded five chapters. Um, uh, Joseph's family has now moved to the land of Goshen. Um, they are right there beside Egypt. Pharaoh has given them a really nice area. Now, if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know what they're getting set up to be done to them. And it's just a fascinating study. As a matter of fact, if you would step back, and I know probably most all of you know this, if not all of you know this, if you step back and read the Bible, even as just a story, just to see the whole story and how it all ties together, it's amazing. It is amazing how God's hand of redemption and salvation is woven from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. It's amazing to see what happened to the Israelites and how they made the same mistakes and same sins over and over and over and over and how God kept bringing them back to himself and bringing them back to himself. And sometimes I'm reading in the Old Testament, I'm like, would you just stop? Like, just quit. Good heavens. Enough's enough. And then God reminds me, hey, you remember that sin that you said you were never going to do again and you did it again earlier? (laughs) Quit. Stop. We're the same way. And God keeps drawing us back to himself. But we get to Genesis chapter 50, and, and, and Joseph's father has now passed away. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, 
They said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us from all the suffering we caused him. So let's make sure that we're understanding what's going on here. Joseph has forgiven them, and as far as Joseph's concerned, he has forgiven them as far as the east is to the west. As far as a human being is, is, is possible, he has completely forgiven them. They have received the forgiveness. They have moved to Egypt. He has reunited with his family, with his father, but now all of a sudden, dad has died, and they once again are fearful because what if Joseph was just using them as pawns to get to their father? And so now the father's out of the way, and now that he's not there to hold them response, hold Joseph responsible, what is Joseph going to do to him, do to them? That's what these guys are thinking. Look at verse sixteen. So they sent this message to Joseph. Interesting. They sent a message to him. This is their brother. They could have gone and had dinner with him. They could have asked for a meeting, but yet they send a message to him. Why? Because they were fearful. They were afraid. Before. He died. Your father gave a command. So now they're kind of putting it back on dad. I want to make sure, Joseph, you understand this is what dad's wishes, not our wishes. What are they trying to do? They're trying to protect themselves. And so this was dad's wish. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now, I want it to sink in for just a moment. I want that to sink in for just a moment. Because Joseph's already forgiven them. Joseph hasn't only forgiven them, he's brought them to the land of Goshen. He has provided for them. He is financially taking care of them. He has given them so much, and they didn't even deserve his forgiveness, and yet he's offered that to them. And they get this, he gets this word from them through a message. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now, we ought to do a study on that phrase. Am I in the place of God? Hold on to it for just a second. If you are unwilling to forgive, you're putting yourself above God. Because God said he would forgive anyone. And if he's forgiven you, the least you can do is forgive somebody else for what they've done to you. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you And your children, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. Joseph's the one crying. And he's comforting his brothers. And he spoke kindly to them. Here's the sixth principle that R.T. says we learn from the life of Joseph. It is this. Forgiveness is a lifelong commitment. Forgiveness is a lifelong commitment. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. You have to wake up and choose that I'm going to continue to walk in this and that the forgiveness that I have given is complete forgiveness. It's a choice. It's a choice. Joseph made that choice. He could have easily said, you guys don't get it, and now I'm going to give you what you deserve. 
and yet he comforted them and he showed them kindness and he made a promise to them, I will take care of you and your children. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied Old Testament covenants, but they're a fascinating study. When you were to make a covenant with somebody, it was a very big deal, not like it is in the United States today. Because if you make a covenant with somebody in marriage, or you make a covenant with somebody in business, or you make a covenant some way by law, there are loopholes here in the United States, and if you get the right attorney and pay the right amount of money, you can get out of the covenant that you signed your name to. Now, I wasn't raised like that. I had a grandfather who said, when you shake your hand and tell somebody you're going to do something, you're going to do it. I had a father that said, if I tell you something, that's what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, my dad was a senior pastor at a church in Alabama, and there was some drama within the church, and during that time, we were walking through it. It was hard on our family, and my dad and I just needed to get away, and he had promised to take me to a basketball game. Now, I played high school basketball at the time, but I had some buddies that played for a town, just a couple towns away from us. They were very good. We had the night off, and we were going to go watch them. They were a 2A school. We were going to go watch them play a 5A school in Alabama. And we knew they were going to get beat bad, but my dad said, hey, come Thursday night, we are going to that game, and we're going to sit really close, and we're going to cheer on your buddies. The drama got worse on Sunday in the church, and the deacon body called for a meeting. And they told my father, they said, we're going to have a meeting on Thursday night, and uh, we need you to be there. And he said, okay, I'll be there. And so they uh, had talked about it that Sunday morning, and that Sunday night, uh, as my dad preached and got done, uh, the, it was it's a smaller church, and it was it was I mean everybody knew there was some drama going on, and so my dad called a little prayer meeting, and he said, "I'm asking you guys to pray for Thursday night. We've got a meeting, and we're just asking the Lord to move in that meeting." Now this is the night we're supposed to go to the basketball game. I'm sitting on the front row, knowing my father has said we're going to the basketball game, but I know what's going on in the church, and I know that he's had to make this commitment. I know he's a senior pastor, and he has to fulfill that commitment. So I'm not going to remind him about the game. And we prayed as a church. And when we got done, I will never forget my father getting back up on the platform after he had dismissed everybody. As people are getting up to leave, he said, oh, he said, I am so sorry. He said, I promised my son that we're going to go to a basketball game on Thursday night. We're going to have to move this meeting. One of the deacons sitting on the second row said, that's not your decision to make. And my father said that decision was already made when I promised my son I was taking him to a basketball game. I learned that when you make a covenant, when you tell somebody you're going to do something, you're going to do it. In the Old Testament, if you made a covenant with somebody, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, and they would lay half of it here and half of it there. And if Mason and I made a covenant together, we would walk between those two pieces of cut animal And it was significant to say, if either one of us breaks this covenant, that is what's to happen to us. We're to be cut in half. That's how big of a deal it was. And so Joseph has already said to them, I forgive you. He's already said to them, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to take care of your children. Yet they were fearful, and so Joseph had to make a lifelong commitment. No matter how long we go, I'm going to continue over and over to forgive. R.T. says there's one more principle. It's further in Scripture. We find it in the book of Matthew. He said that we have to put into this, applying these examples to ourselves. And so the seventh principle, and then we'll look at the verse, is we will pray for them to be blessed. We will pray for them to be blessed. And I just want to make a statement to you. I pray for people when they hurt me. 
But my prayers are typically not, Lord, bless them. My prayers are, Lord, deal with them. Lord, convict them. Lord, if it's worthy, bring your wrath down upon them. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. It's not for you and I to decide how the Lord is going to respond to somebody else. Because, by the way, if the Lord were to respond to that man or that woman that's hurt you the way you want him to respond to them, what if he responded to you the same way when you hurt somebody else? Be careful what you ask for. And so R.T. says that total forgiveness involves an additional element, praying for God's blessing to rain down on the lives of your offenders. Where does he get this? Matthew 5, 44. Greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It is jam-packed, full of biblical truth. And right here in verse 44, in the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for who? For those that persecute you, for those that have hurt you, for those that have offended you. He says in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also in the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. I love what it says in Job 42. He talks about this in the book. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Job. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. Now, do not miss this. Job lost everything except him and his wife. Everything. The wealthiest man in that area, the Bible says that he was a righteous man. God found him righteous. God allowed the devil to take every single thing from him. And his best friends came to comfort him. And by the way, if you got best friends like that, you don't need enemies. Okay? And so these guys are coming. And by the way, his wife, wow. She's just saying, curse God and die. She's not any better. And so this is what he is surrounded with. But when does God bless him? When does God bring way more than what he even had before? After he had prayed for his friends. And Job had prayed for his friends. The Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. I'm sure you've heard Brother Steve talk about this. He was... Him and Miss Donna were talking one day. He said the Lord doubled all of his possessions, doubled all of his money and all that stuff, but he had 10 kids again. He said he didn't double his kids. Miss Donna said, yes, he did. He had 10 in heaven. He had 10 on earth. The Lord doubled every single thing. But it only happened after Job had prayed for his friend. Acts 7, verse 60 says, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Now, let me set the context to this because it's so important. You see, when we look at the life of Jesus, a lot of times we say, well, I understand Jesus forgave people. And when he he was on the cross dying, he looked down at them and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they were doing. But at the end of the day, he's the son of God. He's supposed to be able to do that. But I want us to talk about this guy, Stephen, in the book of Acts, who is being stoned to death for his faith. And the last words he said before he laid to rest, before he died, he knelt down. They were stoning him. And by the way, I don't know how you picture them being stoned back in biblical times, but they weren't taking little pebbles and tossing them in. They were getting big rocks and they were crushing their bodies. 
They were stoning them. They were beating them. I mean, they, they literally did this until there was no breath left inside of them. They're stoning him. They're throwing rocks. They're throwing boulders at him. And he gets down on his knees and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. That is the last words he said before he died. I don't know about you, but I want my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to look like this. And I want the Lord to not hold back any blessing at all. And what we see through Scripture is he, he calls us to pray over each other. Well, you've been given seven principles. So I want us to talk about this question around the table. Which of these seven proved to be the most difficult to follow through with and why? Now, this is you personally. Which of these seven proved to be the most difficult to follow through and why? I'm going to put the seven of them up on the board. You're going to have a few minutes to talk about them, and then we're going to close it out together. Here they are. Well, guys, it sounds like really good conversation around the table. I want to read to you the last two paragraphs. They're, they're not long in this chapter. And then I'm going to give you something to pray over at your table. He said, if you're still asking, how can I know that I have totally forgiven my enemy, my betrayer, my unfaithful spouse, my unkind parent, the one who ruined my life, or the one who has hurt our children. I answer, walking out these seven principles as near as you can come to is as near as you can come to total forgiveness. But this is an interesting paragraph, the last paragraph. I must add one caution. Never go to a person you have had to forgive and say, I forgive you. This will be counterproductive every time unless it is to a person that you know is yearning for you to forgive them. In other words, they've they've come to you and said, I am sorry. They've said that, I am sorry. Notice what he says. Otherwise, you will create a stir with which you will not be able to cope. They will say to you, for what? It is my experience that nine out of ten people I have had to forgive sincerely do not feel they have done anything wrong. It is up to me to forgive them from my heart and then keep quiet about it. Here's what I would say. And I'm working through that paragraph. I'm thinking through that paragraph. There are people that have hurt you. They know they have hurt you. They've apologized. You've had some type of conversation. You know that that's where the rift is. And some of those people, you do need to go back and say, I forgive you. They need to hear those words just as much as you need to say them. But he's saying that's not the case in all situations. And so what I would say to you as I've prayed through this is, you have to walk in the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit tell you whether or not you need to go to that person and say, I forgive you. Guys, there's no greater place than you and I could be than to spend time in the presence of God and for the Holy Spirit to say, this is the way, walk in it. Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? And you know, we pray those things often, but how often do we get really quiet and just listen for the Lord to give us an answer? I shared with the college leadership team on Monday night before The View kicked off that as I've grown up, I've always called them throw-up prayers. You throw them up and hope that something happens, but you prepare as if nothing will. That's not the prayer life I want to have. I want to pray and I want to pour my heart out to the Lord And then I want to get quiet in that secret place and let the Lord minister to me. And so what I would say to you as you're dealing with this and you're thinking through who you need to forgive, 
You need to ask the Lord, Lord, do, you, do, you, do I need to go to that person and say, I forgive you? This is what I would say. If you feel that God has told you to do that, it is the Lord, because your pride doesn't want you to do that, and the devil doesn't want restoration, so that means it can only come from one place. But if he doesn't tell you to do that, then release that from your spirit. Say, Father, I forgive them, and Lord, I pray you'll bless them. I pray you will bless them. I want us to close out our time just by praying over one another. And it may just be one person praying at the table. Maybe you get in twos and just pray over each other. I don't know how you're going to do it. But pray that the Lord would soften your heart to totally forgive as Jesus has commanded us to, no matter who it is or what they've done. So here's what you're doing. You're just praying that the Lord will soften your heart. And guys, that's a tough prayer to pray. Because sometimes we don't want our heart to be softened. We don't want to offer forgiveness. We don't want to extend that. But that's where God wants to take you. Uh, Drew Tucker and I were talking one time. I said, Drew, sometimes I get frustrated in leadership when there's people under me, and I'm trying to convince them that what they're doing is wrong. And he said, Derek, one of the toughest parts about leadership is learning to lead people to a place where they say, that's what I want, not beating them over the head and telling them this is what they need. And so I just want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would soften your heart, soften the hearts of the guys around your table. Pray that. Pray it quietly. One person can pray however you want to do it. Talk for a few minutes. Stay as long as you want. Thank you for being here. The Lord bless you.